Lord, we come to you now. We thank you for uh, the time tonight uh, where we get to be in here as adults and as young adults um, studying the Word. I pray that you would guide our time. Lord, I pray that any time we go in to study the Word, that we would have an expectation that there's something we need to learn, there's something we need to see more clearly, there's something we need to be affirmed in, there's something we need to be convicted about. And help us to really listen closely and look at the word and help us to move accordingly. Um, Lord, it's a privilege that we can sit here with our Bibles and not have to whisper and be able to open up uh, the word and, and ask um, for you to be with us and guide us. So I pray that we would see the privilege uh, that it is and that we would really enjoy it and let this be a time of worship. Um, <clears throat> Lord, we pray that you would guide our time according to your will. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We are going through the Old Testament currently, and when we're done with the Old Testament, we'll go to the New Testament. But we're going through each book of the Bible. Uh, we spent a couple years in Genesis, a few years in uh, Exodus. <clears throat> and then once we got to Leviticus, I didn't want to spend too much time there, so we sped up the pace. And, uh, and essentially, as we prayed about what to do, we decided that it would be best to speed it up, but not for the sake of spending saying that books are less important, but rather trying to cover more of Scripture in a short amount of time. So we've been, we hit uh, uh, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and now we're in Joshua. And this is our last week in Joshua. Part one was last week. So our memory verse for Joshua is Joshua twenty four fifteen, And it's, choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's Joshua twenty four fifteen. Choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. As adults, it's really good for us to be reminded that memory verses aren't just for children. Memory verses aren't just the ways that children learn the Bible and remember the Bible, but in fact, we should memorize the verses in the Bible as well. We didn't, maybe we'd come up with a new name that, that's not as childlike as memory verse, but I kind of like it. So that's what we're going with, but that's our memory verse. The reason I share that uh, with y'all is that there's what our hope is, is that um, we're memorizing the same verses that... Um, the children are working on, and that that will spur conversation between um, parents and kids and youth, um, so that we're talking about the same things as well. Clint, um, each week, is writing songs to go along with our memory verses, and they're being posted online, so we're really trying to help the body to really walk in this, saturate in it, and, and know um, what each of these books are about and how it affects our lives. So Joshua begins a new section of Scripture it's going to take us through the next 12 um, historical books of the Bible, and most of it is chronological, so that gives us some good continuity between here and the fall, or the autumn. When I say the fall, it always sounds like I'm talking about the fall. I'm talking about the latter part of the year. Um, the big picture view of the book is pretty simple. Joshua has 24 chapters, and it's like 12 and 12. The first 12 are Joshua and the nation of Israel just absolutely kicking tail, taking names, um, annihilating, decimating uh, all of the Canaanite kingdoms, um, northern kingdoms, southern kingdoms. They are just going through because God is leading them into the promised land. The second half is them um, dividing the kingdoms. So the first half is much more exciting to read if you're just reading it through, which I know that everybody's reading the entire book every two weeks as we study. I know that, and I'm proud of y'all for that. So good job. Keep that up. But f as you did that, I'm sure you observed that the first half of the book was exciting, and the second half of the book was completely boring and, and monotonous. 
um, because it's just them dividing up the kingdoms, and it's kind of hard to get into some narrative excitement in that. So, but that's how it's broken up. And then it finally closes with Joshua's final words, which we'll look at um, in part tonight. Last week, what we looked at is that Joshua was really a book of conquest, and the conquest happens because of choices that were made. Last week, we looked at um, the choices that were made by God's people that led to that conquest. This week, we're going to look at the choices that were made by God himself that led to that conquest. So tonight's kind of overall view. Um, last week, it was what happens, and it's people choose. This week is why did that happen, and it's God chooses. The only reason we would make certain choices is because God has made certain choices before us. And so we're going to look at how he chooses to fight for the people and give them their land, to lead the people into dividing the land, and to keep his promises and persevere uh, with the people. So Joshua is a book about conquest and choices, and the choices that God has made in his infinite wisdom are far more significant than the choices we make along our journey of faith. But that gives us the, like, if not for God's decisions, the decisions we make would have no significance. But because God has made decisions beforehand, our, our decisions have a lot of significance. And what I mean by that is before you woke up this morning and lived the good portion of today, God has already made some decisions about what that day is going to look like. He's already made some decisions about how you're going to move. God's already made some decisions about who you're going to have differences with and who you're going to encounter. So our God, the word we use for that kind of movement is sovereign. Our God is sovereign. He's a sovereign God. There's no one above our God. I saw a bank in Dallas, and it was called Sovereign Bank. I was like, I just don't feel like that word works for anyone other than God. It's like, I know you're saying your bank is above everyone else's bank, but God's sovereign. Your bank may be good, but, and no one even knows your name, so you're probably not that good. So anyway, um, but God is sovereign. There's no one above him. And so when we're talking about God, and it says that he's, he, wisdom was with him. In wisdom, before anything was created, he was working in his wisdom to, to figure out what would be created. So God has made decisions about so many things and it's not, we, we, we shouldn't have a view where it's like, God's just sitting there waiting on us to make our decision. You know, where it's like, okay, is he going to be right or wrong? Right or wrong? Right, I got one right. It's, he's, not, he's not controlled by that. And in fact, he can use even the bad things for good, which we'll look at later on in the study. But I want us to see a very sovereign God who even before you woke up today, made some decisions about how the day would be who you would encounter, who would set themselves against you, who would link arms with you, conversations you would have, and even the decisions that you would make in those conversations. God already made decisions about that. So that's, that's what it means to be sovereign. So the first choice we're going to look at tonight is that God chooses to fight for the people and give them the land. Turn to Joshua 3, 5. <clears throat> Last week, we, we really focused on the decisions that the Israelites made. The decisions that the Israelites made as they were going through this. And why is this important, by the way? Just, just humor me for a second. Who cares about why the Israelites did what they did and how they did? Why does this affect us? Why, why are we studying Joshua as people who live in America in 2013? Why does it matter? How does it affect us? Yeah, it's our story. What we have to always remember as we're studying the Bible is our story is the story of a people. My story didn't just begin the day I was born. My story began a long time ago as God began to interact with his people. He's always been a God who was involved in the lives of his people. 
So the same God who we serve is the same God that Israel served. And so when we look at this and how they moved and what he expected of them and foundations that were being laid for the coming generations and his plan for the forward movement of his kingdom, what we need to see in all that is that that's our story. That like our story is a story of a people. The more we understand of our Old Testament, the more we understand of our New Testament, the more we understand of both, the more we understand about ourselves and God. So this is very, very significant as we look at this. This isn't just a history book. This is our story. This is alive. This word is breathed out by God and what's profitable that makes us able to do anything right and pleasing to him. So remember that as we look at Joshua 3, 5. Israel has crossed the Jordan. Um, or that's what's about to happen. And so in verse five, it says, then Joshua said to the people, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, the Lord will do wonders among you. Now, quick question, where have they been up until this point? The desert, why? Because they sinned, how did they sin? They didn't obey God. What did the spies do that was really wrong? They didn't have faith in God. Yeah, they brought a report that didn't take God into account at all. They said, the people are big, they're strong, they're going to overpower us, and we can't go into the promised land. And so how long were they in the desert? And what happened to every member of the generation that was at fault previously? They all died. Okay, we're all uplifted, we're all good to go. So Joshua 3, 5, everyone just died. Now, there's a generation that was born in the wilderness. They give a right account of what's going on in the promised land. God says, Moses has died, Joshua is now appointed by God to take his place, and he's saying, get up, it's time to move. It's been 40 years, and we are moving into the promised land. And here he says, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. That's what he has Joshua say to the people. So our perseverance is empty if God's not persevering for us and with us. So what are some encouragements that could be given to soldiers heading into battle? And don't say just what was said in this verse because everyone will know you're trying to be right. Jesus. Yeah. To have faith. To have faith. Yeah. I mean, even just battle. I mean, just anyone's going into battle. What, 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 what could be said to soldiers? And obviously keep it clean, please. But what could be said to soldiers to, to rally them and to, to get them to go, go to battle? To have faith. Be strong. Absolutely. What else? Yeah, who do you have to fear? There's no one stronger than you. Go. What else could you say to someone going to battle? Just any battle. I'm not being spiritually battly here. I'm just any battle. <laughs> Go. That, that, I, I was talking to Ben today, and he was talking about, uh, he mentioned something about a good plan. He said uh, when he was in the military, they said a, a, good pa- a good plan well executed is better than waiting on the perfect plan because you don't know when it's going to come. There's so many things going on. So that's a good encouragement. Go. Well, Get up, go. Yeah. What else? Going into battle. Yeah, don't let anyone put you down. Believe in yourself. Yeah, those are, uh, yes, absolutely. What are some other things? Yeah, don't forget what we're fighting for. That's, you know. Yeah, Braveheart Freedom Speech. Exactly. Y'all got it. They can take our country. They can't take our freedom. Um, so, uh, what is Joshua's encouragement for those going into battle? The battle is the Lord's. And what does he say is going to happen as they consecrate themselves to go out? What's the Lord going to do particularly? 
going to go before them and what's he going to work? Victory. And what's the word in that verse? Tomorrow the Lord will do what? Wonders. Tomorrow the Lord will do wonders. Is this the kind of, incur- the kind of expectation that we have of God in all of our endeavors? When you think about tomorrow, do you think, get up for tomorrow the Lord will work wonders or go to that meeting. The Lord will work his wonders as he sees fit. Go do that thing you are absolutely dreading doing because the Lord sees fit to to work wonders um, in your midst if you are doing what he has sent you out to do. That doesn't always guarantee the most ideal perfect outcome, but it does mean that God's always doing more than we realize and we can trust him. We can trust him. So if we trust him, we have this view that um, and an expectation that God works like this. He makes decisions about our endeavors before we're in the middle of those endeavors. He's made decisions about how that's going to work. So they're going out to battle against the Canaanites, particularly. What We haven't talked about it much in here, but there's a lot of people who've grown up in, in church here. So what do we know about the Canaanite culture and what kind of people they are? Like it's a Friday night. What are the Canaanites doing? Partying, absolutely. Money, money. Yeah, riches. What else? Titles, yeah. Lots of gods, yes. Which means what? Lots of idols, absolutely. Okay, um, um, what are some of the things that gods would require of them? Their gods, lowercase g gods. Sacrifice. What kind of sacrifices? Human sacrifice, particularly Moloch. Does anyone know about Moloch? You know what Moloch required? What kind of sacrifice? Babies. This is a wicked culture. They took, they took part in cult prostitution, um, sacrificing to idols, particularly in the nature of sacrificing their babies, either by running them through or burning them. Now, that's pretty graphic. And, and I'm not trying to just be overly graphic for shock value. I want to share with y'all what the Canaanites were like because we have to understand that this was a wicked, wicked people. I mean, what they were doing was horrendous and um, completely contrary to nature. It was contrary to what God's design was for the world. It wasn't that, well, they can, they can just make whatever decision they want because they're a different culture. No, no, no. They were doing what was contrary to what God said, and it had resulted in horrible oppression, horrible injustice, horrible wickedness, death of children, um, horrible acts of, of um, the lewd nature and sexual nature, just really, really wicked. So I want this to be clear because without knowing about the Canaanite culture, we're going to come back to it in a little bit, it may be difficult for us to understand why they must be completely wiped out and why God's people must guard against taking part in the Canaanite sin. It wasn't that they were just different people. It was a wicked, wicked culture that God had said. God said, God didn't, did he allow anyone to live through those battles? No. No, he said, wipe them out. Like, you go in there and you take out everyone. So what are some of the ways, getting back to the point that we, that we got to, that was a little side to to bring it all together at the end, but what are some of the ways that God exercises wonders among his people? How does God exercise wonders among his people, past or present? 
food from heaven. Yeah, manna. I love how a couple weeks ago we looked at, and when they finally ate of the produce of the promised land, there was no more manna the next morning on the ground. It's like, God, so, so perfect in his timing and his provisions, always abundant. And, and uh, then when, he, when they had what they needed, it went away. It was just so good. I'm sure someone complained that there was no man on the ground. I'm convinced someone did it, even though they ate of the produce of the land. What are some other ways that God exercises wonders, past or present? Yeah. One a week? That's, I remember when it was 50 a day. Golly. And I've seen fruit of the Spirit in that little girl's life too, which is something that's been prayed for and been observed. It's that, yes, wonders indeed. Sweetness. Gosh, that's sweet. What else? Wonders, past, present. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> There's still nomads in the middle of the desert. The, 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 that's a great point. Well-organized nations with powerful kings and like cultural structure and like warriors that are trained and things like that. And that's who's, they're going to get wiped out by a bunch of no-name nomads that have been wandering around for 40 years. What else? Wonders, past and present. Yeah. Every day through his creation. Wonders. I, I love the just anytime the kids ask a question. Oh, Dad, look at the cloud. Look at the bird. Look at the whatever butterfly. Look at the stray cat that keeps coming to our house. And uh, it's like it's like, well, hey, who made that? God. Well, why'd God make that for His glory? I mean, just over and over again, wonders every day. What else? Wonders past. Wonders present. Yeah. Yeah, that by the work of the Spirit, that someone could see God through a fallen, fragile, common people. That is absolutely wondrous. What else? Yeah. 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 Yes. Yeah. There's a whole lot of coincidence, <laughs> if, if you even want to call it that anymore. I mean, I, I've gotten to watch. It's like an orchestra. I mean, just. God up there just orchestrating so many beautiful things. The reason I'm pushing this and saying, past, present, what is it? What is it? I keep asking. I've asked it 10 times now. Is because we're supposed to be in awe of God. A lot of us have lost that awe in some sense. And um, when we engage the word, the, the point is to, to keep that. We're to, to fan into flame our, our, our faith and the gifts we have in, in Christ. And um, God, I mean, I, I could really stop the study right now and say, okay, we're just going to talk about the awe and wonders and we could be here until 10 o'clock tonight and people would want to keep sharing if we really dig into how good our God is. So don't lose your awe, don't lose your wonder because he continues to exercise wonders among his people even today. Um, are there, just to be clear as we move on, are, are there any kings of any of the kingdoms that they did not conquer? 
Did any of the kings make it out? Okay, yeah, it was, it was ever, maybe the Gibeonite. Um, the Gibeonites, they, that's a little side note we'll get to. But, um, so no kings made it. So I want you to turn to Joshua 10.42. We're going to read Joshua 10.42, and then we're going to read Joshua 23.3. Joshua 10.42, remember we're talking about God has made a choice to um, uh, fight for the people and to give them the land. So in 1042, it says this. Start in 40. So Joshua struck the whole land, the hill country, and the Geb, and the lowland, and the slopes, and all their kings. He left none remaining, but devoted to destruction all that breathed, just as the Lord, God of Israel, commanded. Joshua struck them from Kadesh, Barnea, as far as Gaza. Then 43, they returned, all Israel, uh, to camp at Gilgal. So, so no one was left over. And it was God who told them to do that. Now turn to 23.3. So the, the fight that was fought on be, on, for Israel was decisively victorious. The fight that they fought was decisively victorious. No one was left. No, no one lived. They did exactly what God said. And then, so we see that. We can look at Israel and say, Israel whooped everybody. Israel was not defeated by anybody. There was a short stint with AI, but then they went back and they whooped them afterwards. And so um, they did what was commanded with the exception of the Gibeonites, which they made a covenant with, and we'll come to that later. Everyone that God said, go in and, and wipe them out. It was decisively victorious that we can look at Israel and say, Israel did exactly that thing. Now look at 23.3. And you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake. For it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. So we can look at that same picture and say, it was decisive victory for the Israelites to whoop up on all every um, tribe, nation, kingdom within the Canaanite um, territory, and, and they did that, and it was God who fought for them. This is really um, significant. First, I'd ask if we're giving God proper credit in each of our victories. I don't want y'all to answer out loud, but I want y'all to take a second to consider in your minds, think, am I giving God proper credit in all of my victories? Maybe you have a sin that you struggled with and you've really had some victory in overcoming that sin and putting to death the deeds of the flesh. Are you giving God credit for that victory? See, like Joshua did here at the end of the book where he said, yeah, everyone was annihilated. God fought for us. Are you saying, yeah, I was able to put that sin to death. God fought for me. Are you coming out of a hard season of life that was very, very challenging and you weren't sure if you were gonna make it through that season and you are where you are now? Are you decisively in your mind, in your prayers, and in your recounting to other people saying, God fought for me. He's the one who brought me out of these things. He's the one who's delivered me. He's the one who's handed over my enemies to me because he is fighting for us. Are we giving God that decisive victory? The second question that I'd actually like to ask for some discussion is consider what kind of impact it would have. What kind of impact should it have on us to know that God fights for us? What kind of impact should that have on us? Humble us? Not afraid. Yeah. Who do you fear if, if God's fighting for you? What are some other things that should do to us? 
yeah, fight evil. I don't want to fight evil if God's not fighting for me. No thanks. Exactly. Be strong, courageous. Pay attention to the entire law. Don't swerve to the left or to the right. God fighting for us is, is very, very significant. I, I wonder about, like, just think through the challenges in your own life, things you're battling. Um, remember, our battle's not against flesh and blood, but against darkness uh, and principalities. So um, we fight against sin. We fight against deception. As you're fighting your battles, I want you to think, would I be doing things differently than I am right now, or would I be doing things differently than I did today if I truly believed that God was fighting for me? Would that change anything? And if, if the answer is yes, I want y'all to spend some time considering that. Consider how would, I, how would I view this circumstance if I believe God was fighting for me? How would I view this relationship if I believe God was fighting for me? How would I view, or maybe you should say us, maybe it's you and a Christian person. How would we view this if we believe God's fighting for us? What kind of things would we say? What, what kind of prayers would we be praying? So God is fighting for us, and it's no small thing. Turn to 11.20, Joshua 11.20. The reason, before you read it, don't read it. Everyone look up, don't read it. You'll spoil it. The reason I want us to discuss the boldness and the perseverance that comes from knowing that God fights for us is in one of the details that's found in 1120. Think about all your battles, any differences you have with other people, any uh, hardship you're going through, where there's something personal between people, um, anything you feel like you need to stand firm in and, and, and persevere in, um, in faith. Um, we're to fight with boldness, with perseverance, knowing God fights for us, but we also have to take into account this little detail in 1120, which says this. For it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed just as the Lord commanded Moses. Well, now it's getting complicated, isn't it? That's pretty complicated, right? Um, how does it affect us to know that God may harden someone's heart to wage war against us? Yeah? Yeah? Yeah, wait. Is he fighting for me? Or is he hardening their heart so they're fighting me? You see what the, the, the dynamic is? Is God fighting for me as I fight? exercising victory over the enemy or is he hardening the heart of the enemy to wage war against me? And the answer is yes. Absolutely. Aren't you encouraged? Yes. Um, so what do you think? How should it affect us to know that God may in fact harden someone's heart to wage war against us? What should that make us do in battle as we prepare for it, as we wage it? Yeah. Yeah, trust God. With what? Yeah? Yeah? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. God, that, what he just said is really important. God is a just God who is judging even through these battles, so it matters how we fight. It's a huge point. What else? What else? 
How else should that affect us? Knowing that the person who's against us may be in that position because God hardened their heart to do it. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. That yeah, th- this is difficult. This is difficult. You got to fight the way that God's told you to fight, but you also got to know that there's more going on than just what you can see. I mean, we walk by faith, not just by sight. Um in fact, they're opposed to each other at times. And so um what what I want us to see here is that you know, just think about um Just think about being wronged, just wronged. Like someone has wronged you. Someone has been cruel to you. Someone's been mean to you. Someone has been um, unjust toward your children. Uh, Someone has hurt someone you love. Um, a A lot of this happens within our relationships. It may not be us, but someone that we love has been wronged by someone, and it just, there's a lot of involvement there. And if I know that there's potential in the circumstance that God could have hardened someone's heart so that they would wage war against me, that's going to cause me to do a few things. One, it's going to cause me to soberly assess things. I'm not going to fly off the handle at all. I'm going to be very careful in my assessment of things. I'm going to make sure that I'm carrying myself the way the Lord calls me to carry myself. One of the things that um, has, I've, I've found the need to talk about a lot in the last few weeks, just in some discussions, especially from the forgiveness and repentance uh, sermon, is that love's never an option. Like It's not optional. It's always to be there. We're always to be loving people. So you can't be like, well, dude, well, I mean, all I'm doing is being a kind Christian person, and this person treated me like dirt. Who do they think they are? And all of a sudden, you're upset, you're offended, and you're, okay, I'll show you how I can be. If you think I'm a jerk, maybe I'll be a jerk. And we can, like, get really out of sorts when love's never optional. We always love people. Luke 6 says that, says that God was kind, Jesus was kind, to the ungrateful and the wicked. So what do you do to the ungrateful and the wicked? You should be kind to them. It's likely the ungrateful and the wicked who are going to be the ones offending you or hurting you or or being unjust to you. Jesus was kind to them. And Romans 2.4 says that his kindness is meant to lead them to repentance. Your kindness could do that, to lead them to repentance. So we'd have to soberly assess any battle that we're in. The other thing is to make sure we know what our objectives are. That was what, what Chuck just mentioned earlier, was why are you doing what you're doing and how you're doing it? Um, another piece of scripture talks about do not get entangled in civilian pursuits because you are sent out to war. You're an ambassador. And so we have to remember, okay, in this heated thing, this undesirable circumstance, this hard relationship, this, this uh, less than desirable situation, what's my point? I'm a Christian. I'm one of God's children. What's the point here? And the point is to glorify him in all that you do and to put the gospel on display, to love your enemy and to persevere and to not quit. This is so much easier said than done, right? I mean, we're talking about some hard stuff here, but what we have to do is remember, hey, I am sent out. I got to know what I'm called to, and I can't get entangled in other things. If you are offended by someone and they just kind of drag you into it and all of a sudden you're taking part in their, that's what the Bible calls it. 
someone sins against you and rather than loving them and, and being ready to exercise forgiveness and, and being eager to be kind, um, you, you, you decide, oh yeah, eye for an eye. And you kind of go back at them. That's when you are, what the Bible says, um, you, you are taking part in their sin. Or another part of the Bible says you're entangled in what they're doing. And so we have to be sober and remember, I, I'm not here to like make, some of us just need to say, my life goal is not to make sure that everyone knows I'm right. Some of us need to say that. My, like my life purpose is not to make sure that everyone knows I'm, I'm not wrong ever. Like some of us need to, to just love people through it. They think we're wrong, okay, that's fine. Let's, let's be loving and kind and work through it and give a reason for the hope that we have with gentleness and respect. That's what the Bible says. So, um, yeah, it should affect us to know that God may indeed be hardening someone's heart to wage war against us. And through that, he's either going, he will exercise judgment. That's a very important point. He will exercise judgment. Either your kindness will lead them to repentance and the situation and the decisions that God has made will lead that person to repent and maybe become one of his children or they'll harden their hearts against him. There will be no repentance. And in the end, they'll be judged for that as well. But God's exercising judgment. And we're to be faithful to what he's called us to be faithful to. So, Joshua is really a book about a God who conquers. I mean, it's a book about choices, obviously, but it's a book about the God who conquers, the one true God who conquers. Joshua made this clear in his farewell speech at the end, which I'd like to read in larger parts. So turn to Joshua 24. At the very end of the book, uh, Joshua... says this in verses 2 through 13. Consider the God who conquers. Joshua said to all the people, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. And what I want you to see as I read this is, how is the Lord acting because of decisions that God has made along the way as Israel was battling? And it says this, Joshua said to all the people, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. That's where we started. Just to be clear, that's where we started. If our story is the story of a people, our story begins with, we weren't serving God. We were his enemy. We were serving other gods. And look what God does. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river. I took and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau, and I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess. But Jacob and his children went down to Egypt, and I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it. And afterward, I brought you out. I mean, God is decisively victorious in all these things. His conquest is being seen, and I did this. Yes, y'all were part of it. You played a role, but every role, every decision, every choice you made is because I made a choice, and I'm your God. He goes on to say in verse 6, Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea. And the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. And when they cried to the Lord... He put darkness between you and the Egyptians, and he made the sea upon, come upon them and cover them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt, and you lived in the wilderness a long time. Then I brought you to the land of the Amorites, who lived on the other side of the Jordan. They fought with you, and I gave them into your hand, and you took possession of their land, and I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel. And he sent and invited Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. Indeed, he blessed you. 
So I delivered you out of his hand. Isn't that awesome? And you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho and the leaders of Jericho fought against you and also the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. And I gave them into your hand and I sent the hornet before you. I love that story, which drove them out before you, the two kings of the Amorites. Imagine you're going to battle, a little bit concerned, trying to get ready. God sends hornets and stings everybody and earns a decisive victory for you via hornets. So awesome. It was not by your sword or by your bow, but by the hornets. I gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities that you had not built and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. And then he goes on to say, now therefore, fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. Put away the gods that your father served beyond the river in, the, in, in, in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. He's very serious about serving God here because he's seen what God has done and the choices that God has made through this entire journey. So he's saying, essentially, if you don't see fit to serve God, serve the Amorites, God. Oh, did you hear how they'd lost? Like, I love the way the, the flow of it goes. And he handed over the Amorites. Uh, or you could serve the Amorites, God. You know, whatever, whatever works for you. And so here, he is, he is being serious about that call to choose whom you're going to serve. You be serious about whom you're going to serve. You be wholehearted. You be dedicated. You be all in. Because God has made some significant choices for the victory of his people and the things that he's called them to. So there's so much action on our behalf by our God, and I think we should be challenged not to miss it. He sovereignly accomplishes his every purpose. I've gotten to see some things this last year where I'm just like, if that person hadn't answered that phone, that call, things would have been totally different. If, if that thing would have happened two days earlier, this whole thing would have been different. There's just so much beauty like we cannot fall out of awe of how awesome God is as he orchestrates things and moves things along and brings things to light and allows us to be victorious in the work that he calls us to. It's so good. God's in every detail working his will out accordingly. And here's what I want us to see. This is pretty cool too. Romans 8.28 says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Morse taught a while back and he explained that that's kingdom good. All things work for kingdom good. So I can't say, well, all things work for what I think is good, but God works all things for those who love him, those who fear him, those who are following him. He works it all for good, for kingdom good. Um, do y'all remember the issue that, that Israel had with the Gibeonites last week? What happened? Do y'all remember? They made a covenant with them, and why was that not good? <laughs> yeah. When God says, don't do that, and you do that, that's what we call sin. So they sinned. And in fact, what, it, what we saw there was that they even had plurality in place. Well, that's fallible too, if you're not prayerful and faithful in your movement. So here, the plurality of Israel, the elders of Israel who were leading them into the promised land, it said that they didn't pray. They made a decision based on, we got this, and they didn't pray. They thought they had all the wisdom that they needed in their experience, and they didn't pray. And they made a covenant with the Gibeonites because they thought, oh, they're not even from around here. The Gibeonites fooled them. They like sewed patches on their clothes and made their bread stale saying, oh, we've been on such a long, long journey. But then they live like right there. 
so that they wouldn't kill them because they knew that they were killing everybody in that area. So they fooled them, then they didn't pray, and then they made a covenant with them. This was a horrible idea. They should never have made a covenant with the Gibeonites. But what do we know about the Lord? We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Now, this does not give you an excuse to sin and say, God will work it out. Paul says, by no means. By no means. Should we continue to sin so the grace abounds all the more? In effect, Paul says, heck no. What are you thinking? That is the worst theology and the worst doctrine and the worst life goal you could ever have. I'll just sin a lot so God's grace is seen in my life. No. No, that's not a good idea. Rather, you pursue holiness. You do what you're supposed to. And there will be times where you absolutely sin. There will be times where you step out of line, where you sin against God. And they did that with the Gibeonites here. Now, the treaty that was entered into wrongly was even used by God for good. In chapter 10, I don't want to read all of it for the sake of time. And, you know, I know that y'all are going to go and continue reading this book. Um, But uh, in chapter 10, the treaty that the Gibeonites made with the Israelites, what happened there was that, like, at this point, the northern kingdom had been largely conquered, I believe. I think I got my timelines right. I think that's right. The southern kingdoms hadn't been dealt with yet. In the, in the promised land. So what happened was the southern kingdoms all said, did y'all see the Gibeonites? Did, y'all see, did you see what they did? Let's mount up and go take care of the Gibeonites. I can't believe they turned on us and, and, and said yes to Israel and the covenant. And so all the southern kingdoms got everybody together and they're going to go and battle the Gibeonites. Well, the Gibeonites, being the pansies and liars that they are, go to Israel and say, hey, um, uh, we got people that want to kill us. Can you help? Because we have a covenant. <laughs> We're one, right? You're good. And so Israel's like, oh, this is a headache. But what happened was really cool. In that chapter, the treaty brings out all the kings of the southern kingdom. The mightiest kings is what it says. And ultimately, this attack expedites a great victory for the Israelites as they destroy all the southern kings in one fell swoop. That's like saying, man, I got beef with like 10 different people. I'm going to take care of them over time. And then they, they all show up. You're like, all right, let's do this. That's what happened here in, a, in the most righteous and holy way. They all show up and it's like, oh, good to see you're all here. Ah! And no one lived. Everyone died who set themselves against Israel. I mean, this was, so the epitome of God using even those things that seem very, very bad, even those things that were the product of the sin of the Israelite elders, and he worked it for good to where in one fell swoop, all of the kings of all the southern kingdoms were killed in that battle decisively as the Lord had said. In verse 40, it says, he, Joshua, left none remaining, but devoted to destruction all that breathed, just as the Lord God of Israel commanded. As every one of those nations used their breath to conspire against the Gibeonites, God used Israel to make sure at the end of the day, none of them had any breath left. That mercy reached an end. That's what I want us to see here. This should make us, I love the way that Dever said it in his survey. He said, this should make us humble in success and encouraged in trials. 
And our successes, we don't say, look how awesome we are. We point to God and how awesome he is who's fighting on our behalf. And then in our trials, we, rather than saying, oh, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know, I can't do this, I can't do this, we're encouraged in our trials because we know God's fighting on our behalf. These realities should make us humble in success and encouraged in our trials. God also chooses to lead the people in dividing the land. Now, this part's a little shorter. Turn to 20, Joshua 20, verses 1 through 3. A part of this designation was to establish cities of refuge. It says this, 21. uh, Then the Lord said to Joshua, say to the people of Israel, appoint the cities of refuge of which I spoke to you through Moses, um, that the manslayer who strikes any person without intent or unknowingly may flee there. They shall be for you a refuge from the avenger of blood. This is starting to sound like a comic book. Manslayer, avenger of blood, what in the world is going on here? Um, okay, there was something called um, the kinsman redeemer. Now, a kinsman redeemer in that time was the nearest male relative of a tribe. And if someone killed a member of your family, the kinsman redeemer had the, um, y'all listen up, this is, this is crazy. He had the uh, right and the authority and the, the sort of the expectation that the kinsman redeemer, if someone killed a member of his family, murdered him, the kinsman redeemer became the avenger of blood. It, it really does sound like a comic book, I know. The kinsman redeemer became the avenger of blood to get the manslayer, okay? We're all on the same page. Now, that means that if I strike and kill someone out of anger, it is within the, every right of the kinsman redeemer to become the avenger of blood and kill me. No one's going to be mad at him. He's not going to get in trouble for that. It's you murdered someone, so that person's kinsman redeemer is going to be the avenger of blood and murder you or kill you because you're a murderer. Now, the problem is what happens if it was an accident? We know we have uh, involuntary manslaughter would be an example of that. It's still manslaughter but it was involuntary. So what happens there? And what happens is that God set aside and designated cities of refuge. They were places where the person who was wrong, they killed someone, but even if it was an accident, like the Bible, I was reading through some of the deals in, in Numbers, and it was like, it, it said something about, it was just hard for me to picture, but like, if you accidentally drop a boulder on someone because you didn't see they were there or something like that, I'm not real sure how that happens, but they did more boulder work than I do. So I'm sure it was probably more normal. But Um, pushing someone on accident. Something happens, you push someone and there's a cliff and they fall and die. Okay, well, I didn't didn't try to kill that person. What do I do? Because the kinsman redeemer is about to come murder, just lay me out, take my life. What do I do? Well, you go to the cities of refuge. The reason that God put the cities of refuge in place was so that there might be both justice and mercy throughout the land. God cared about justice and mercy throughout the land so that they would be handled rightly. So for God's people, there's to be justice and mercy regularly exercised. But the slaughter of the Canaanites, this is what's remarkable. The slaughter of the Canaanites, is Ben trying to make a point? Because it's not even seven. Okay, praise Jesus. Whew, he was about to get fired. Okay, um, just kidding. We're friends. Um, uh, This is a weird time for the kids to come in. The slaughter of the Canaanites... Avenger of blood, um, the slaughter of the Canaanites was, was the most pronounced destruction in the Bible between the flood and the end of the world. 
Remember, when, no, when the flood came, um, there was no one righteous, and God chose Moa he, Moa, Noah because he was blameless. He chose Noah because he was blameless, um, but everyone else died, like the whole earth. Between the flood and Jesus judging at the end of time in, in Revelation, the, the wiping out of the Canaanites is the most destruction and of judgment that we see in the Bible. So God is incredibly patient with us. And um, in Romans 2, 4, it says that his kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. What do y'all think that that means? His kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. What do y'all think that means? <laughs> I'm so glad you said it that way. That was good. Incidentally, we deserve death. Why do we deserve death, incidentally, Corey? Because we're sinners and the wages of sin is death. That's right. The wrath of God is towards unrighteousness. Everyone's unrighteous. No one deserves anything better than the death that God would execute through judgment. So his kindness is meant to lead us to repentance, meaning don't, don't, um, don't assume or presume upon his kindness that he just doesn't care about what you're doing. It's meant to lead you to repentance. If you're unrepentant right now and you still have a borrowed breath from God in the name of all that is good and on behalf of Christ be reconciled to God, because his kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. What we must understand is that God will not finally endure injustice. That's what we saw in the Canaanites being killed. He will pour out the wrath that we so richly deserve. So my first question, do you believe that? Do you believe that God's wrath is an issue for those who are unrighteous? Um, that we deserve wrath. Romans 1.18 says he pours it out on unrighteousness because it suppresses the truth. And we know that the wages of sin is death. Dever makes a note that amazingly, for those who repent of their sins and trust God, God's wrath was poured out on Christ. It wasn't that he just said, never mind about the wrath, but he poured it out on Christ, and that's what's called propitiation. Christ was our wrath absorber. And so, for those who are in Christ, um, that wrath was poured on Christ, our loving substitute who laid down his life at the cross on Calvary. Yet, hear this please, those who do not repent and believe will receive God's wrath upon themselves. And to understand what that looks like, we look at the destruction of the Canaanites. I want y'all to understand that destruction that happened there. Over and over again tonight, we've said not one of them lived. Not one. Complete decisive victory as God fought for the people, through the people, and they were victorious. So if we want to understand what the destruction looks like, if we, if we persevere in unrepentance, we look at the life of the Canaanites. Um, I want us to... Um, at the end of this study, um, be reminded that um, God is completely faithful. And so for us who are his children, we're to be faithful and obedient, strong, courageous, careful not to depart from the law. And that's the only appropriate response to a God who keeps his promises the way that he's kept them. Um, I want to share a quote because uh, what I want us to see, it's just from Edward Parson. And um, I want us to see our depravity. I want us to see our need of God so that when we see God fighting on our behalf, it means something. I want us to see um, our, our God who fights for us because when we're in the middle of the battles and things that are daily life and hard conversations and hard relationships, I want us to know that, that we are desperately needy people, but that doesn't mean we have to be timid, but we cry out to God and we ask for him to be with us the way he was with the Israelites as they um, exercised decisive victory over the Canaanites. And Edward Parson says, you cannot make a rich man beg like a poor man. So you won't have a hunger for God's grace and mercy and victory if you don't see your need for it. So you cannot make a rich man beg like a poor man. You cannot make a man that is full 
cry for food like one that is hungry. If you're not hungry for this, you're not going to cry for it like one who thinks they have all the victory that they need. No more will a man who has a good opinion of himself cry for mercy like one who feels that he is poor and needy. Christian congregations are founded on the recognition of our own poverty, our own spiritual need, and Christ's fullness. So the end of Joshua is that we, we make decisions in how we follow God because of the decisions he's made on how to lead us as his people. And he's very good. And obedience, being strong, being courageous, is the only appropriate response in worship. Normally, I would close right now in uh, prayer, but I, was, I think I'm handing over to Brad. Are you praying something? Is Lindsay in here? Is she? Lindsay? Come on up here. Scott and Lindsay, y'all come up here. Scott and Lindsay are going to go to a uh, conference this weekend. We're going to pray for them before they go. Um, real quick, I just want to say, kind of be transparent with you for a minute um, as we're sending them. Uh, the role of, the, of an elder is is and should be and feels very 24-7. It is a beautifully consuming role here. And, um, and I say that, I mean it's beautifully consuming. Um, but it's hard to retreat. <laughs> Y'all, your movement, we're constantly thinking, what are you believing? What are you hearing? Is what you're seeing true? Is what you're hearing true? And that never turns off. And... Um, we, as elders, haven't walked in uh, something very well, and we haven't retreated uh, very well. Scott and Ben and I, we haven't um, conferenced. I don't even know if that's a verb, but we haven't conferenced. We haven't sharpened ourselves in study and with other pastors. We just haven't done that very well. And the coolest thing to me is that the men that called us on it and held us accountable to it were deacons. And they're holding us to it. And they're making a way for us to retreat more with our wives and go to conference and study and sharpen ourselves. And that's just the most beautiful thing to me, that these men, the deacon body that's leading with us, are calling and holding us accountable to it. So Scott's going to go. He's going to do the conference and uh, be a part of a really cool conference that's going to sharpen him. And then um, Lindsay has been commanded and prescribed to sleep in. For the first time in six years. <laughs> so, um, you know what they're going into? You leaving tomorrow? Tomorrow. Be back? Late Sunday. Late Sunday. Late as possible. Late as possible. <laughs> <laughs> um, pray, pray, pray these things throughout the weekend that they'll enjoy their time together, that Scott will be sharpened, that Lindsay will sleep in and get rest, that they will and, uh, really retreat and really be sharpened and not be constantly worried about the kids. Um, those of you that are moms know how that is uh, when you're trying to get away and retreat. And so let's just pray for them as they go, and you pray for them during the weekend. Now you know what they're going to be a part of. Father, we are so thankful for Scott and Lindsay and their family, for Scott's role here, for his teaching, for how you've used him in so many ways. It's my prayer that he would get rest this weekend and that he would be sharpened by what, he's, what he hears and what he learns and what he discusses with other pastors and other men. I pray that you'd give Lindsay rest this weekend and that you would... Um, we're just thankful for the time where they can give one another some attention that they don't normally give one another. And um, we're grateful for other men in this body who are holding us accountable 
to sharpen ourselves and retreat. And you are a good God to give us these men around us. We are grateful. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.